we are becoming human and there's no art piece at the beginning again. What is happening? Well, we're talking about death again. So we're going to go in reverse order again. Death will do that to you. Last episode, I, I mentioned a couple things that deserve some more attention. First, that our culture's relationship to death is suspect. We are severely impacted by it. And, and you know, it either paralyzes us or, or it goes untouched. And this is called a reactive response to grief and suffering. And, and from the way we do memorials to the way we talk about death and the coping mechanisms we often resort to, we just don't handle death well. Secondly, we talked about the grieving process, specifically bereavement. But we mentioned that grief deals with any loss. Grief doesn't just happen when we lose people, but when we lose anything. And just as we aren't so good at dealing with the death of people, we aren't so good at dealing with the deaths that occur, well, every single day. Whether it is stuff, or aging, or experiences, or a role, or, or a relationship, or anything, we should be paying attention to the grief involved. And sometimes, yeah, this is almost unnoticeable and, you know, quite possibly requires very little attention at all. That's fine. The opposite problem here is that minor losses can consume and paralyze your existence. However, when, when we de-elevate certain losses, everything kind of becomes no big deal. You know, we're doing fine. We're doing good. No worries. And I don't know if we just sociologically decided that we weren't going to give credence to the various grief we endure, or if we just don't consider those things losses. But it is a little more commonplace to grieve the death of a person than all of these other losses we experience. We really don't talk about grief in respect to everything else. But technically, it is the same process that should garner the same attention. Maybe not the same impact or the same amount of energy, but attention nonetheless. And what tends to happen is that we carry around these losses. The death of a person, especially when tragic or, or unexpected or with someone whom you were deeply connected to, it's like the rending of a major laceration of the soul. The grieving process is about healing that wound and owning that resulting scar. These other losses are wounds too, though. And sometimes, you know, they're more like paper cuts. We move on with the day. But some of us carry around so many paper cuts that have gone neglected, that we're bleeding out, all while saying, yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you? Listen, I'm not trying to say that every time we are asked about our well-being, we should rend our garments and wail. But your life is constantly ebbing and flowing. Are you aware of how it's affecting you? Are you paying attention to the marks on your body and on your soul? You know, you can cut your finger and it's no big deal. But even, even that, you know, you'll probably get a little water, maybe some duct tape, and that'll be enough and you move on. But you still notice it. You still take some sort of action. And you still might have a scar there that marks the moment. But it's a little more culturally appropriate to talk about physical injury. These, these are existential injuries. It's okay to notice them as well. If for no other reason than it is part of your story, no matter how minimal. It's like a, the Black Knight on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know that scene? Tis 
butterscotch. Your arms off. That's us. Seriously. We're the Black Knight. These things happen, and you're carrying that, and it deserves the same process, even if it's not to the same extent. You can't go on ignoring it. You can't pretend like it didn't happen. You, you can't be like the Black Knight. No. That's it. That's the content. That's the point of today. Uh, the practical principles here are that all losses deserve attention. There you go. And, and it's the same as you, you break an arm, you get a kink in your neck or you cut your finger or, you know, you have your limbs removed while defending that tiny bridge. The attention should equate with the severity of the wound, but it deserves attention. And, and by attention, that's all I mean is attention. Simply by going, you know, this season of life is over or this is different now or the loss of that item is a part of my story. That's all I'm talking about. But that's also one of the biggest things you can do. You know, are you aware of what losses are accumulating to your experience of being alive? In, in the Jewish tradition, there's this word, rachaf. And last episode, I mentioned the, the funerary practice of a sitting Shiva. And it's very similar. Rachaf comes from the creation narrative in the Jewish tradition, you know, a book called Genesis, before the world was created. The picture is that God hovers over the waters. But it's a weird word because it's the same word used for when a mother bird broods over her nest. It's also the same word when a mother holds a dead child. That's how they depict God before creation happens. And some commentary points out that this is God taking a moment of attention in the midst of the world shifting. A landscape is being altered and God stops and sees that landscape before moving on to what is next. When people talk about journaling or meditating or just sitting and reflecting, there's a practical component to existence of marking what is, what isn't, and what is going to be. It's the process of taking an experience and integrating it into your existence, which now we're talking about the grieving process, which is also, unfortunately, it's countercultural. And whether it's because we feel the need to move at such a pace that we can't see well, or because we desire to move quickly so that we don't have to see well, we don't really do this whole rakaf thing, this attention that integrates something into our existence. Like, you can drive everywhere and move really quickly. Driving is a very efficient means for traveling to destinations. But if you were to ride a bike on your normal route, well, you're not going to get as much done. You don't move as fast, but you see more. You catch more detail. You process the experience more. That's kind of like that. Or maybe even further, what happens when you walk that same path? Our existential grief means that sometimes we need to get out of the car and walk. And the other practical principle here beyond paying attention and integrating our experience with reality is that we need to undergo the grieving process even for these more minor wounds. But let it be said, just 
because the death is not of a person does not necessarily mean it is minor. Nonetheless, yes. All of this is just a way to say that the grieving process we impact last episode should be used for all the other things. That would have been a much simpler version of the episode, I suppose. But you didn't think I could wrap this up so soon, did you? Alas, we have come to the art piece. Because I want to share how I've done this. How I failed to pay attention to some wounds and what I did about it. I had to create something. It was my rachaf that allowed me to tangibly see the grief and integrate it into my life. And this happened about a year ago. I was really struggling to make sense of some parts of my life. I was really struggling with loss and I didn't quite know where to place it. And part of this is because my family has grown. My kids are getting older. And I find myself thinking back to when I was their age. And as I did this, I started to notice that there was, there was some baggage I was carrying around from that season of my life. So this past summer, I wrote a sort of memoir as a means for dealing with those wounds. And it was my attempt to pay attention, you know. And then, though this was a bit after the fact of these things, it was also a way for me to still go through the grieving process because it was still there. And, you know, writing, that's making stuff, that's kind of what I do. I make stuff to help me wrap my head around the world. Technically, that would be instinctive grieving if you're keeping track. But if you thought I made all this content for you, no. Come on, let's be serious. These are like love letters. The author is the primary recipient. But I'd like to share this with you now. Just, Just like the death of a person, proactively dealing with these wounds, it's important. And, you know, as we've been talking about death, This is my attempt to share my process with you and possibly, possibly give an example of how how we can process the existential deaths of our lives. I hope you enjoy it. As always, any support, acknowledgement, or sharing you are willing to do would be appreciated. I do try to sustain my income through all of this self-loathing and content creation. And you can do that at coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash becoming human. And there's lots more ways to connect. We can connect on coffee or social media or web, my website, tylerglebergrad.com, whatever works for you. But let's get on with it. Here is a reading of a lost home, a lost family, and a tequila bottle filled with dirt. The house I am looking at is my own, or at least it was. My blood and the work of my hands composed its formation, but I cannot go inside. I can only stand here and wonder what could have been. It was 1998, and I was in second grade. A major change was about to occur. My family home had always been on Elm Tree Drive, and underdeveloped part of my small town. Our real home, however, was at my grandmother's. The Kleberger homestead had always circulated around my grandmother's property on the other side of town. In our small town's infancy, this area used to be rural, 
In fact, my grandparents lived on something more akin to a farm than in a neighborhood. Fortunately, it encompassed a larger chunk of property than was normal for the area. We spent most days here. If there was a meal to be had, it was at Grandma's house. So when the property next door went up for sale, my parents bought it immediately. Technically, our new house was only a mile or two away. However, as the town grew, this area became its own district. What had become a historic road almost became the gateway to the rich neighborhood. We called it the colony. Being the gateway to such a district meant our property was not extravagant by any means. These were the older homes surrounded by development. But we were right next door to Grandma, the lifeblood of our family. We also didn't settle for what started as a meager two-bedroom home. Immediately after moving in, the vision began. We were going to add on to and completely renovate the scant residence. Quite literally, we, we were going to do the work, the school and employment by day, a family of builders by night and weekends, of course. It took a couple of years, but eventually we created a magnificent abode. We pieced together rocks for the exterior. We dug a pool practically by hand, and every drop of paint and every brick on the walkways was done by us. Our home was a dream, and Grandma was right next door. I have such vivid memories of that place. We threw the best parties, we had amazing holiday seasons, and I will forever hold with fondness being able to walk out my side door to sit at my grandmother's. Because we had unprecedented access to land, our yard was the yard to play in. I, I can still smell the fresh cut grass from when I would sit by our beautiful pool and reflect on all the hard work that went into making a dream come true. Yet, those are now just memories, an artifact of existence that can only exist in my mind. Like a picture of a deceased loved one, I can reflect on previous moments, but in the end, I can only visualize the past, mourn what is now inaccessible, and let go of any future continuation that is forever out of reach. The house, however, does not carry the most pain. Sure, those memories are beautiful, and I wish I could go back and sit in my grandma's rocking chair one more time. I sometimes contemplate what it would have been like to take my children swimming at their grandparents' house or play catch with them in the yard just like when I was little. But that's all gone now. My grandma was truly what held our family together. I didn't know it then, but my parents struggled. In fact, our, our move and housing renovation seems to have been one last attempt to make something worth staying together for. My dad worked more and more. My mom was a closet alcoholic. And when my grandmother died, so did my family. Our housing situation provided some convenience, if only for a moment. What was Grandma's house soon became Mom's house. It made it easy to see them both whenever I returned from college. The once warm, inviting homes so ingrained in my childhood both felt empty and cold. It was like visiting a museum of a former life that was slowly becoming a morgue. Every visit only signaled the impending end, a constant reminder of what was now finished. 
My parents would officially get divorced shortly thereafter. The home we built, the life we created, and the esoteric hope of the future became a symbol of the pain. I wanted nothing to do with it. I would sit in my childhood room and, instead of playful thoughts and fond memories, I felt hatred. How could something so perfect be thrown away like this? I did everything I could to keep my parents together. I looked for every glimmer of hope that this could all be restored. But just like the presence of my grandmother, it was over. I knew it. No matter how much I pretended to ignore reality, the house now represented everything that had fallen apart in my life. Yet I still held out hope. Maybe I could start my own family, and we could still make this a meaningful space for the future. Maybe another project awaited that could maintain the memory and history of this place. Maybe we could still come back for a meal and let laughter fill these rooms one more time. Maybe we could take it all back and start again. Before any of that, however, I had to escape the pain. My family had died. And with it, my hope. I got married the next summer and immediately moved to California. On our way out west, we stopped for one last night in my childhood home. I slept in my room, now a grown man, but one who desperately wished to be that child again. The next morning, like so many other mornings, I woke up, walked outside, and left. I did not know it then, but that was the last time I would ever step foot in the house. What I would give to have one more day there, to show my children the places that formed me, to tell them about their great-grandmother and the parties and what it was like to put rocks on the wall and mix concrete until midnight and then go to school the next day. But shortly after I moved, my parents' divorce forced them to declare bankruptcy, and the house was foreclosed upon. I got a phone call from my dad telling me he was sorry and that our home was gone. Finally, the home that represented our dead family, our departed history, and our lost story was also no more. The death of my home in the form of a house came through the death of my home in the form of my family. It's late December and Christmas is done. My family takes Christmas pretty seriously, a last-ditch effort to uphold those wonderful Christmases as a child, I suppose, and there's plenty of cleaning to be done. We live in an old farmhouse, and for efficiency's sake, a tiny closet sits in the corner of the kitchen under the stairs. Not sure what to do with such a strange space, this is where we store our cleaning supplies. The closet needs some attention, and so I tuck myself through the tiny door of this room that is no taller than four feet. I feel like Harry Potter. The mess is disorienting. I don't think we have touched this closet since we moved in three years ago, and the accumulated mess testifies to our neglect. As I move items out of the way, I finally clear enough room to sit in the corner amidst other items that have certainly been there since our inhabitants. There's a broken broom, a few empty boxes, and the random toy making an admirable effort to avoid the trash can. It's a lingering mess that has been avoided and here I am, confronting it. The metaphor became reality, however, when I saw tucked away in the corner a long, 
lost item that was intentionally left hidden since the day we moved in. A tequila bottle, with no liquor in it, just dirt. There's no cool worm story here. The existence of this token goes back to one of those unceremonious visits to my childhood home-turned-museum morgue when I had just turned 21, and the awkwardness of feeling like a ghost, returning to the present with no resemblance of the past I knew. I was ready to end the visit, go back to school, and get out of that symbolic hell. The night before I left, I decided to use my time to pack up my things so I could get on the road as soon as possible. My dad, who often worries about the state of motor vehicles, wanted to make sure that my car was fully functional for the return trip. The tension of the house was heavy, and the future clear. Irrespective of my obvious disdain, my dad asked me to go out to my, my grandma's garage to find an air pressure gauge so we could check my tires before I left. There's a feeling of dread over the property that once held my family now split among the various houses. The steps were familiar. Out the side door and to the left, the garage door opener that we always kept in our house was still there. I hadn't been in my garage since my grandmother died. It's a massive structure, once home to my grandfather who used it as a mechanic shop for the rich folk who lived up the road in the colony. The smell of motor oil and construction materials had an air of familiarity. As we approached the garage, the rattling noise of the garage door careening its way up felt like a nursery rhyme. I wanted to yell at my parents, we can still have this, don't throw it away. But I stay silent. I want to get this over with. I walk straight in and begin rummaging through various tools. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. My dad's tools are probably still from the 20th century. What did air pressure gauges even look like back then? After a couple of minutes fumbling around, pretending I know what I'm doing, I turn to tell my dad that I can't find it and ask if we can just go back inside. As I turn, however, I'm caught off guard by the observation that he isn't looking at all. In fact, I see him with an unfamiliar bottle and two really small glasses pouring an amber-gold liquid into each. It was then that my dad said words he's probably been waiting to say since I was born. Come here, son. Let's take a shot together. Now, call me a prude, but I had never consumed alcohol. Not that I was against it, I just didn't really care to. Alcohol cost money, and alcohol played a vengeful role in the story of my family. With this, my father had planned well. With him, he brought a cup full of lemonade. I come to learn this is called a chaser. He handed me one of those small glasses that have only one purpose, to be thrown back into your throat as quickly as possible. He held up his glass, told me to just drink it as fast as I could, and then take a sip of lemonade. He made a quick toast, signifying the shared knowledge of just how much this all sucked. And we drank. As I blanched my mouth with lemonade, I noticed he poured another glass, then another. I told my dad my blood felt warm. We sat in the garage and laughed. He told me of the hell he had given us and how he didn't know what to do anymore. He spoke of how that moment was the first moment of joy he's had in years. We went inside. I went to bed. And a couple of months later, 
my parents were divorced. As I would sit in Pasadena, I would often wonder about my childhood home. I longed for it. We had created a masterpiece for our family to grow together in. When my dad called me to tell me the news of the foreclosure, the regret and hatred emerged once more. I had already felt the death of the family I had once known and loved. Now I was facing the death of the last piece of materiality that connected me to that lifeless abode. However, when my father called, he also shared something else. He was coming to visit, and he had something for me. We met him at Union Station. I waited for my father, whom I hadn't seen in what felt like forever, as various passengers got off to catch their next train. He had not yet met his two-month-old grandson, and we hadn't seen each other since the house was gone. Finally, his feet hit California soil. As he held his grandson for the first time, he handed me his bag told me to look inside. I reached in and felt solid glass. I looked at him suspiciously as he told me to pull it out. It was a tequila bottle, but it wasn't a new one. I immediately recognized the weathered glass. It was the bottle we shared that night in the garage, but there was something else. Inside that relic of a container was not an amber gold liquid. There was a bunch of dirt the note. The note explained how sorry he was for our family and for our home, and how, knowing I no longer had a home on that ancestral property, he brought some of that home to me, dirt from the yard that held the last of my memory and my identity and my family. I treasured that bottle. It represented my life in a profoundly real way. Yet, as I eventually moved back to Ohio and had my own home, I tucked it away in the overly efficient closet. The pain was still there. As I fumbled through the neglected space, I realized I was neglecting part of my past. Sometimes, the physical death of a person can be easier than the existential death of a life that is still visible yet utterly impossible. So that day, In the middle of post-Christmas cleaning, I made a choice. I took the bottle to my office where a picture sits, the last picture my family ever took together, and I placed the dirt-filled tequila bottle next to it as a visceral reminder of a fractured family, a lost home, and the wounds they had caused. I chose to remember what has gone wrong. Sometimes I look at that bottle and picture and I get angry. Sometimes I'm devastated by the futile future I hope for. But then, I often remember what was good, what was bad, and hope that maybe I can do better if I learn from those who have gone before me. Shortly after finding that bottle, I found myself driving to my old home with my three children. My dad, unfortunately, still occupies my grandma's house having to stare at the beautiful home he created and no longer owns. I always had hoped that I'd be driving to that property with my children, in the anticipation of joy. Now, I was driving to share with my children the narrative that they, too, are a part of. We pull into my dad's driveway, once a shared pathway between two homes of unadulterated love and connection, and I can't help but cry. 
I feel 10 years old again. I see myself walk over to my grandma's to get the hidden key and fill her house with firewood while she is gone. I imagine myself playing with my friends in the yard before jumping in the pool. I then dream that at this very moment I am sitting by the pool as my children swim at the Kleberger homestead, drinking tequila and chasing it with lemonade. But none of it is real. What is real, however, is that I show my children where they come from. The wounds, the joys, and the difficulty. I share the stories about their great-grandmother and about my family. I take them on a journey to what is dead, because in some ways, that's still alive. Something leaves, and it leaves something behind. We still have that. In the face of loss, what you do with that something is what matters the most. And often, it is the only thing you can do.